Welcome everyone to the Deep Dive, the podcast that skips small talk and goes straight for the concepts that shape our thinking and behavior. In this podcast, cold expertise is defenestrated as warm philosophy is enthroned in an attempt to explore the field in which we're all scientists looking for answers, living well. Hello world, welcome to another episode of The Deep Dive with Eyal Shine. My guest today is Johnny Miller. Hi Johnny. Hey there, it's great to be here. It's great to have you. Uh, <laughs> and what would be an idea that's been helping you live well? Mm. So I would say that the way we view the world and the way we experience reality is filtered through the lens of our nervous system. And that is an idea that I've been exploring in, yeah, lots of different ways for myself and, and sharing with others too. Yeah, that's fascinating to me because uh, my natural tendency is to think through things and I realize mm. that I need to associate with people who are exploring reality in different ways and that's really important for me so um i'd be interested in asking you know how you first come across this idea or even thinking about this mode of experiencing reality mm. that's um it's a good question and i could probably give a very a very long answer the the abridged version is <clears throat> um i went through a period of Pretty intense grief um, in starting in 2017 and after I lost my my fiance she she took her own life and during the process of grieving um, I think I really kind of realized how numb I'd been and how disconnected from my body I'd been from for pretty much most of my life without really knowing it I was just like living in my head the whole time and I think through initially you um, A lot of meditation practice meditation teacher trainings yoga teacher training um, initially I, I guess I stumbled upon the breath specifically through pranayama practice through yoga and then through meditation um, and from there I, I just I just found it so powerful and so effective that I just got really curious I guess and started to learn more for myself um, and then a few years ago I, I ran into someone called Ed, Edward Dangerfield when I was living in Bali And he is a uh, FBR practitioner, which stands for facilitated breath repatterning. And he was one of the most knowledgeable people about the nervous system that I'd, I'd ever come across. And some of the things he was sharing just really, really blew my mind. And I was like, I want to I learn from this guy. I want to just understand this more for myself. It felt really important. Um, and so I suppose it's been a, a kind of journey of self-experimentation, exploring things, um, teaching things as I, as I go. Um, yeah, that's kind of the, the brief version. Wow. So first of all, I mean, I think for all of us, the ideas that have been helping us live well, I think they came to our mind as part of a um, problem-solving process, right? And it's mm -hmm. very clear in, in your case that, um, not to say that grief is a problem, but it's, it's very hard. Like I experienced it myself with my mom passing mm -hmm. away when I was 10, And mm. it's 
very hard to know uh, what amount of grief and for how long the grief mm-hmm. is fitting, right? Because it's mm-hmm. clearly fitting and it's a process that our soul needs to go through, but um, it can and does become a pathology. I think it, it did in my case, definitely. Mm. So I'm really interested in um, in the, the experience of grief for you, um, what what was it and why did you seek to, I guess, uh, move on? Would that be fair to say that you've uh, turned to breathwork to move on from grief? Is it, uh, what mm. was your feeling about it? Mm. Um, I actually wouldn't say the word move on necessarily. And I think that my, my experience of grief was that it was, it was actually more learning to let go of the stories and let, let go of trying to, to do or fix anything and more just surrender and allow the emotion and, and the grief to kind of pass through. And I think the the breathwork practices in particular kind of allowed me to almost get out of my head and get out of my own way to allow the, the natural process to unfold. Um, there's a beautiful quote of, of like the cure for grief is grief itself. And um, I don't think it necessarily has, has a timeline, but um, the more that we feel safe in our bodies to kind of go into the the intensity and the and and you know the pain that is there um in in my experience uh it like it it really once i kind of got through the initial like denial the kind of the despair the fact that like everything about my identity and and, like the 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 future i'd imagined for myself just kind of self-combusted um and as i think i kind of started moving through that um, there was a real a kind of spaciousness and actually joy that opened up. And I found that the the energy of grief was, was actually, the sensation was very similar to you know, joy and, and bliss and connection, um, which wow. was kind of strange. It, it kind of took me by surprise. I was like, whoa, this is like, is it okay to, to feel this? Like, aren't I meant to be like sad and depressed right now? <laughs> and uh, uh-huh. it was, yeah, it was a real kind of initiation, I think. And um and and I think that experience then led me to exploring, uh, you know, the the full emotional spectrum and finding out ways in which I'd been blocked or kind of had these inhibitions. You know, growing up in England as as a as a man, um, I think there was just a lot of like repression there. <laughs> I think I've been slowly like unlearning a lot of my Britishness. <laughs> <laughs> it's not uncommon, I hear. Um, uh-huh. Uh, yeah, this is this is fascinating. I mean, in my case, I can definitely say that uh, I can really relate to what you're saying about being able to open up again and let things pass through, because I mm-hmm. think one instinct when you are, um, you know, blindsided by something ter- uh, terrible happening in your life is to immediately cocoon or put a huge barrier between yourself and the world because... Mm-hmm. You, you don't want another hit, right? Just like you kind of recognize at that mm-hmm. moment was like another hit like that and, uh, you know, you may be done for. Um, but what happens is that whatever emotion kind of is present, I think, at that moment when you put up this huge barrier always stays on your side, right? Mm-hmm. And so you, in a sense, recognize that all the more desirable emotions like joy happiness Mm. and stuff they 
can't really come through while you have a barrier and it's this mm. long process where um yeah you have to get to a point where you're just like okay this barrier is coming down and i'm going to allow in the full spectrum of mm. of emotion back into my life mm. right this is what mm. it uh, mm. makes me think of yeah i think that's really well put and and there's maybe two things i'd add to that um the first is that i think the kind of impulse for denial <clears throat> or like putting up that barrier initially is is one of, of is, is a very healthy impulse and i think it's very normal and like a natural part of the cycle i think we get into challenges where we get stuck there and we kind of don't find ways to move through that and i know that in my case part of what helped me move through that was um meeting or, or you know seeing other adults who'd also lost someone close to them but hadn't really grieved and there was this sense of like they were almost like this like shell of this like husk of a human and that sounds a bit extreme but there was this sense of like a lack of aliveness in them and i think it's because exactly as you were just saying there was this wall up against not just the grief but you know all emotions and so um that had you know accumulated over time almost like this like emotional debt and they weren't living fully in in my in my view so i think that that the fear of ending up like that helped me to kind of really lean into the the other direction yeah yeah that's and and i'm glad you did i mean it's it's really interesting how in the name of safety you know our, our blind spot can be such that we aim to live a good life but because we're mm. so averse to um suffering and pain we might mm. actually sort of put ourselves in this um walking dead right kind of mode mm. uh for a long time mm -hmm. um yeah and then uh, in terms of of breath work what was a um what was a moment for you where you recognized something shifting and i'd also love to know how it actually works uh from from what mm. you know mm. yeah sure um before we go there i just wanted to kind of reflect back the, the phrase of like living a good life i think one of my biggest learnings and you know this would definitely count as like a big idea is that avoiding pain is not uh conducive to a, to a good life I, i think that pain is is really a powerful teacher and catalyst for um some of the moments that i'm, I'm most grateful for in my life and leaning into discomfort And particularly kind of the the more shadowy emotions that we tend to avoid whether it's like anger shame grief like these things like there's been so much juice there for me um that i'm almost angry at the idea of like a, a good life is one in which we you know, we only experience happiness and we don't experience pain because i, I think heartbreak is Absolutely. like an inevitable part of the human condition um and there's so much richness in there if we can kind of learn to appreciate it so anyway that was <laughs> just my little rant there um but in terms of breath work and i think your question was was like how does how does it work and how has it impacted my life um i would say so perhaps the the impact that it's had on me personally um initially i found the so i was kind of into meditation for a while and I found these kind of pretty simple breathing practices, um, things like alternate nostril breathing, bellows breath, 
um, triangular breathing. Um, just, just kind of short practices you can do in less than five minutes to have a profoundly like an instantaneous impact on my nervous system. And then, cause I was really into meditation at the time, I found I could meditate a lot for a lot longer and a lot more peacefully after doing kind of five, 10 minutes of breathing practice. Um, and I also got into free diving when we were living in Bali. And again, I was just struck by the difference between trying to do a dive by just taking a deep breath versus spending two minutes of doing triangular breathing or humming on the surface of the water and then diving. And, you know, I could dive almost twice as deep and, and for twice as long after wow. doing these practices and getting down to like 110, 120 feet sometimes. Um, wow. So just really kind of like humbled in some ways by like, wow, it's, I, I mean, like, like we were saying before the call, it's like, well, you know, I breathe every day. Like I, I can breathe <laughs> and, then, and, and <laughs> learning how it is such a, a lever to influence our autonomic nervous system. Um, and to go into some of the mechanics as to say how, um, let's say the four, seven, eight breath might be something that, that a lot of people have heard of where you're inhaling for four, you're holding for seven, and then you're exhaling for eight. And the way that that works is there is essentially a part of our um, lower brainstem that is spying on the way that we're breathing. And when we, when our exhale is longer than our inhale, when we're breathing into the belly as opposed to the upper chest, um, and also when we're breathing through the nose, it, it's kind of like a cue to activate the parasympathetic nervous system. So that then sends signals to the, the endocrine system in our body, which then releases um, various hormones, which actively kind of calm us down and, and change our physiology and change our state. And then our, our brain then picks up on that. And then we have kind of calmer thoughts. We have fewer thoughts, you know, we're more relaxed and this kind of perpetuates the cycle. Um, and the, the reverse is also true. So let's say someone is um, breathing in through their mouth, in through their chest, their breath is shallow. Um, that will very quickly activate the sympathetic system, which then again sends signals to the endocrine system to release epinephrine, which is basically adrenaline, cortisol. That then stimulates the kind of fight-flight response, and that then leads to you know, racing thoughts, low-level anxiety, all the things that we're familiar with. And that then also reinforces the cycle. <laughs> and so um, the, our breath really is like a bridge to the autonomic nervous system and, and to our subconscious. And so both noticing the way that we're breathing kind of moment to moment, and also if we have a desire to change our state, like let's say, um, let's say I was really nervous before coming onto this podcast, I, I might sit down for five minutes and do do some humming, do some alternate nostril breathing, the breathing into my belly, and pretty quickly I'll feel a lot calmer. And then my voice won't be as high, and I won't be you know, sweating profusely and all these things that happen when we feel anxious. Um, so, so that's probably the kind of, um, that's like the basic overview. And then there's also mm -hmm. um, a, a modality that I mentioned, facilitated breath repatterning, which is a very different type of breath work that is uh, over a longer period of time. It's usually kind of one-to-one -one or it's in a, in a small group setting. It's to music. And you basically practice circular breathing for about 60 to 90 minutes. And this, this practice is, is a very powerful way to el elicit um, 
incomplete reflexes that are stored in the nervous system. Um, these can be like low, like low level traumas, even big, like bigger traumas <clears throat> and um, allowing those, that mobilization response to be completed in a kind of safe environment. So an example might be someone has had a surgery, they were under general anesthetic, and then a week later they go through this, this breathing um, FBR kind of practice and their body gets to complete the kind of mobilization reflex that would have been um, would have happened naturally but was suppressed by the anesthetic um, and there's lots of ways in which particularly mm. when we're younger as children we we suppress these kind of responses um, and they get stored or buffered in our nervous system um, and if enough of these get stored over time it creates this fragility in our nervous system which leads to um, you know, reactivity, getting angry for no reason, kind of reacting disproportionately to whatever's coming our way. Yeah. Okay. So I have, I have a kind of a, a, a two ways to, to, to go from here. Uh, I think I'll, uh, first I'll ask, um, while we were on the subject of um, still processing emotion and grief more mm -hmm. specifically in your case, um, I was interested in, in learning uh, if you remember if that was something uh, that happened. I don't know if it's probably gradual, but was there a moment where you were uh, feeling that if we're talking about emotions passing through, uh, does it mm -hmm. feel like um, uh, some sort of corridor that was closed before is now opening up? Is there a feeling of relief mm -hmm. that's brought? Because that's different than just calming yourself, right? Um, mm -hmm. Is it... Mm -hmm yeah opening yourself up in some sense do you mean in the process of going through grief or could you like rephrase the question slightly or just repeat the question um yeah i'm wondering if if in your experience there was a, a moment or a series of moments where you felt uh just that the grief can pass through you or the emotion can be processed better because mm. of this like how how does it feel mm. i mean i'm sure that um mm. there is also kind of a, a connection there where it, it does it is something that's floating up to your conscious mind right at some point mm. and then mm. you kind of register mm. that and notice um so mm. have you found that there's a distinct feeling of having a trapped emotion versus an emotion that can mm. flow through and um, mm. and you can let go of or it can let go of you mm, yeah okay um great question so the way that i think about this is almost like imagining a hose pipe and and you can kind of take the word emotion and think of it as like emotional energy in motion and when this is flowing through a hose pipe that can get kinked in one of two ways it can get kinked in a way in which mm -hmm. we repress it so let's say say it's anger for example um, someone might repress that they might then get resentful they might be passive aggressive and you know, they they don't really f again it, it's like a way of avoiding or resisting feeling the anger the other way it can be kinked is it can be kind of overexpressed, where someone gets like aggressive and they maybe go into rage they go into story they attack and again that that's another way of not feeling the anger itself um and and with, with grief this like a theory that I have is many of the kind of the five stages of grief that have been kind of documented. My sense is that those stages are the different ways in which we resist feeling the intensity of grief itself. And once we allow ourselves mm. to 
to resist less, the grief gets kinked less and it becomes a more kind of like flow of, of, of essentially love. And, and there's, there's a beautiful um, idea that like grief is essentially praise for those that we've loved and lost. And it's like the price that we pay for, for having loved. And I, and I feel like the, the sensory experience of um, grieving when it is kind of unkinked is one of just like deep love and reverence and connection and rawness and aliveness. And it feels beautiful, honestly. Um, but I think the, the challenge is, is like you were saying, is kind of like working through the ways in which we're resisting feeling that. And we can get stuck in stories, you know, we could maybe blame ourselves or feel guilty or shame for ways in which we didn't show up for the person if it's, you know, someone that we've lost. Um, or there can be other emotions that come up that almost like, um, again, kind of like stunt or block that hose pipe of kind of coming through. And I think that's the, that's, that's the work that we have to do of, of self-reflection and, um, and also creating safety for ourselves and safe spaces. I think the, the body is very good at like tracking how emotionally safe we are in any situation, whether it's the people around us, whether it's the context, or if there's, you know, bright lights and loud noises coming, um, and so creating a space where we, you know, maybe it's in nature, maybe it's um, in the sea while we're swimming, but somewhere where we can really kind of like physiologically let go and almost like <sighs> there's that sense of like relief. That's when we can often sink into um, the feelings more because there isn't that like um, protection mechanism that's happening in the body. Yeah. Yeah, that, that makes intuitive sense to me because I think so many of the metaphors that are describing different emotions, uh, really there's almost the category of the undesired ones come about when there's resistance, mm -hmm. while the uh, more positive ones usually, again, I'm very much with you. I think that every emotion has its fitting place. Um, and I myself dislike it when people are like, you're supposed to be happy and that's, that's a good life for sure. Um, but over time, if anything is pathologized, that it's usually the, the resistance part where you said, where you stop interacting mm -hmm. with the world and you're kind of in your own, um, echo chamber mm -hmm. or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, yep. yeah. So that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I read uh, James Nestor's Breath, which is an amazing book about everything to do with breath. Well, I don't know if everything, but <laughs> the guy did a lot of research and um, yep. reported yep. firsthand his experiences with experimenting with different kinds of breath, working with different um, experts and so on. And one motif that was in the book that he said he was amazed to find out is the fact that almost every generation features a kind of a weirdo guy who like gets all into uh, breath work and finds amazing things and it's mm. recorded and people can reach it and uh, it's scientifically proven and then mm. for some weird reason this guy dies without really living any sort of mm. legacy behind and it leaves our whole society still very much behind um you know, the cutting edge of, yeah. of breath work. And mm. I wanted to ask you if everything that you're describing, let's say about uh, breathing from our bellies, is that something in your view that our species has evolved doing, but is something that we lost? Um, mm -hmm. Or 
I mean, how, how did we get to the point where we are doing something that's suboptimal, even though we're basically just following instinct? Mm. Mm, that's a great question. Um, well, I, I know that James Nestor kind of lists some of the reasons that we have as a society almost transitioned into habitual mouth breathers and the very detrimental effects of that. <laughs> um, it's, it's interesting. I, I think that there's also, I mean, most indigenous cultures um, have some sort of breath-based practice as well, whether that's kind of setting the container for a ritual or ceremony, or if it's using this more kind of circular-based breathing, which creates altered states of consciousness. Um, there's, you know, there's many, many different documented types of um, breathing practice from like Mongolian tribes, Russia, um, South, like South America as well. Um, so in terms of like, why do we, why do we breathe in a way that is suboptimal? Well, I, I think what it comes down to is that most of us in Western countries and cultures are chronically overstimulated um, by city environments by you know phones and apps and there is this kind of low level um chronic stress that is present and when our bodies are in that state the natural response is to is to breathe in a certain way which then exacerbates that state um and so i, I mean i think it's one of the reasons that breathwork is becoming incredibly like popular and mainstream in the last kind of five, five or six years. And, and my sense is that like with meditation that kind of came from the East um, a few decades ago, uh, I think breathwork is having a similar kind of rise where people are realizing that they can kind of take some sovereignty over their, over their state. And I think a lot of this comes back to agency where, you know, if someone's suffering anxiety or, or stress, they often feel quite helpless to that. It's like, my body's doing this thing. I can't change it. What do I do? And awareness of the breath and simple breathing practices and how the mechanisms work are really effective at helping people to relax down into a state where they can function normally. Um, but yeah, it, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question. That, like, uh... like why, why are we, <laughs> why are we as a, as a race kind of, functioning suboptimally and in a lot of ways i mean i can think of of many ways beyond in, just in the a lot of ways that, that, that yeah, we're kind of divorced it's, it's really interesting a lot of a lot of our like like even i mean the fact that we're sitting in chairs like chairs are terrible <laughs> if we if you sit in them for long periods yeah, of time yeah we're just um, chatting about it on twitter <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly um, <laughs> yeah, yeah it's it's it is interesting because i i think that a lot of the a lot of the remedies that we that we find that we need um and we need very creative uh, very uh, persevering people to to come across these techniques that help us um make ourselves better in terms of health mm -hmm. are really they they really could be instilled in children right if you just had the right education and mm -hmm. it wouldn't be very hard to teach a child who's like uh, you can do dialectic when you're young, which is something I'm doing. So therefore, you're going to be grow up to be a, a good critical thinker. And when you're young, you can obviously teach meditation to children and do mm -hmm. that. And they'll be growing as, you know, because meditation is just a, a practice in a sense that 
you, you're supposed to be able to just move about in the world with this awareness and not lose it and not be hijacked. Um, and I feel like breathwork is another uh, part of this uh, toolkit. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it really does resonate with the discussion we had about kind of what kind of environment we design and in what way it designs us. Because I think ultimately we really want to think about the environment we're in and design it in a more healthy way. And these Mm -hmm. things that we today see as remedies, as medicine almost, like you can learn this practice. And, you know, to be honest, it can be quite um, effortful to take on something like that as a grown-up as an adult Mm -hmm. and learn a new breathing technique and stick with it because we're already disturbed, right? It's not easy to sit in one place for 90 minutes Um, in meditation. It's not easy to do dialectic and be asked hard questions and think harder than you're used to. Um, And this is the kind of like more powerful medicine that you already give somebody who's obviously not well but it's these are all can be uh, avoided. We can avoid getting to that place of illness in the first place if we had mm-hmm. the right education and the right environment to support us. And mm-hmm. I think I think that's a very um, interesting way of thinking about because ultimately we we want to learn about these medicines because we want to fix ourselves in a way, make make ourselves better in this in this age. Um, but for our children, I think we, we always have to think about, oh, how do we get them to be the kind of person who doesn't experience all this um, mm. stress to begin with, right? Mm. Yeah, um, I've I've thought and, and actually had quite a few conversations on my podcast about this exact question. And a way that I frame it sometimes is like a, like a how to human user manual. It's like, you know, if you buy a car, you get a user manual with it. But we've we've somehow kind of been educated at schools in things like trigonometry and calculus and things. But there's so many basic things about our like human physiology and the way that we operate that we just, no one ever told us. And I remember in my 20s almost being like angry of like, why didn't someone tell me about this? Like, this seems so fundamental to like living and functioning as a, as a human being. It's, it's like, it's like what? And and I think you're right that, um, I, I actually think that children probably have a much easier time learning and grasping a lot of these things. And that meditation from what I've heard comes pretty naturally to young children. And that what is challenging for us is there's, there's more of like an unlearning process where we have to like peel back the layers of conditioning that have been plastered on us in order to get back to the thing that's, that's there. Yeah. And, and our environment is not conducive to actually breathing deep. Mm-hmm. I mean, our, our responses in terms of, of fight or flight or the stress things is because we're living in a, in a stress inducing uh, environment, mm-hmm. like we say. So I think mm-hmm. and the, the, the next step is to kind of work on that and bring back our lives to a place that's more wholesome because teachers in school mm-hmm. are themselves not, um, not people who are necessarily um, doing well. Um, yeah, so that's mm-hmm. kind of, we went uh, off on a tangent there, but I think <laughs> it's, it's interesting. Um, what, uh, what would you, um, 
advice to people who are looking to get into breath work? Um, is there a, because you you just listed so many so many different techniques, and I know that there are. Mm -hmm. uh, by the way, is there is there a kind of a a thing that can be abstracted from all of them, or could you achieve very different things with different mm. techniques? Yeah, so starting with that question first. Um, yes, yeah, some of the things, or well, I guess principles, are um, you're essentially working with your um, autonomic nervous system, and the things that the body is looking for are if the exhale is longer than the inhale, that will generally have a kind of calming effect, um, and also where the breath is. So we have sympathetic kind of nerve endings in our in our chest around our sternum and parasympathetic down in our lower bellies and kind of pelvis area and so when breath comes down into that area we're kind of stimulating the the parasympathetic nerve endings um and there's also effects of say if, if people hum or sing or chant om in the kind of yoga context that's um that humming, particularly when it's like up here, releases nitric oxide, which is also a vasodilator. And it also has a kind of pretty effective calming, calming effect. Um, but yeah, I mean, lots of people are kind of creating different breath recipes. But I think once you understand some of the like fundamental principles of like, this tends to make us more alert and more active. So say bellows breathing, um, which some people might have heard of is you basically sit, sit upright. And for about 40 to 50 rounds you just exhale sharply through your nose so it sounds like and if you do that for about 30 or 40 breaths it, it very quickly kind of activates the system creates alertness and then usually it's helpful to do something like alternate nostril breathing or triangular breathing to then kind of calm back down um but there are, there are i mean there are so many different kind of recipes that people are creating um there's an app that i've just the, the founders reached out to me it's called othership and they have some pretty i think pretty good like recordings of, of like guided breathwork practices um there's a lot of I, i think insight timer also has quite a few different practices and there's a book called 21 breaths or like 21 i, I can, I can look, look up the title but again it's like a, a friend of a friend and i think he lists like 27 different or 21 different breathing practices for different situations um so i, I think it's hmm. from my perspective it's about like um trying these for yourself and, and noticing the effect on your body and kind of tuning in and be like okay i actually do feel differently after this or if you have a meditation practice maybe instead of doing 15 minutes meditation maybe you spend five minutes doing a breathing practice could just be simple box breathing which is like three 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 or four 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 um, and then going into meditation and just noticing, like, how do you, how do you feel? Um, yeah, the, the, the one thing I, I'd add as well is, um, I know Wim Hof breathing is, is pretty popular these days. Mm -hmm. And I, I would caution people against, um, having like a, a regular Wim Hof practice. Uh, the, there've been people who've gone through my course, who've reported kind of getting stuck in anxiety in kind of in this very activated state and being unable to, to downregulate and to come down. And uh, Wim Hof is a very highly activating breath. And I don't actually think it's healthy to hyperventilate in that way long term. Um, 
So oh, it's, you know, it can be great in, in the short term if you want to go in and jump in cold water. That's fantastic. But doing it on a daily basis is actually, especially if someone already has some underlying dysregulation, it can really throw people's nervous systems like into oh, the deep end. That's that's interesting because, yeah, I'm I'm gonna step forward and identify myself as somebody who, I I, I think would I be wrong in assuming that most of us. Uh, need more the the calming down techniques than the alertness or is it no i think that is spot on um with the exception of people yeah. who are kind of in kind of going through depression or in this like what's known as dorsal vagal state where it's like this collapse and shutdown um the majority of us i think are overstimulated and we need more calming practices so things like i'm a big fan of nsdr or non-sleep deep rest which is derived from yoga nidra, which goes back hundreds and I think even thousands of years. Um, yin yoga, these kind of like long calming stretch. I think like this is the really the medicine that our culture and society needs. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to step forward and identify myself as part of the minority. I can be uh, quite lethargic almost and... Mm -hmm. Uh, it, it helps me in life in the sense that I'm, I'm very very chill like you could uh, people could blow up next to me it wouldn't trigger mm -hmm. me and I would be able mm -hmm. to uh, diffuse them or be able to um, kind of still keep talking with them and in that sense that's good but a lot of the times I find myself when I'm just like as you say not activated um, mm. enough so um yeah, in, in that I guess that's that's the technique you were briefly um, you were briefly modeling there before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so so like the the bellows breathing or um, let's see, um, hot and cold kind of working with saunas or, or ice baths can be really good as well. Um, kind of movement, kind of work workouts and things in the morning, and 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 actually this might be an edgy one, but I've worked with breathwork clients before who. Have described similar and they found that um, accessing anger has actually been a really helpful tool for kind of increasing their sense of aliveness and, and increasing that kind of vibrancy um, again this you know this has to be in a kind of safe container but some people have like uh, like there's you know they'll, they'll punch pillows or they'll um, in breath work we do this thing called an arm compression where it's like we push against their arms and then they bring through loud sound at the same time and it's this like energy kind of coming through and, and out um and that can be really helpful for kind of like shifting people from the more what's what's generally like the, the dorsal response which is this kind of like um just much lower on the arousal spectrum and kind of coming back into into like a, a the window of tolerance i guess is the, the technical way of saying it hmm. interesting yeah so I'm, I'm wondering in terms of uh, everyday uh, practice and not practice in the sense that you're training for something, but just uh, mm -hmm. doing doing the thing day in and day out. Is it mm -hmm. is it for you uh, a certain technique that you do at certain times of the day? Like a lot of people are going to be very consistent with their meditation mm -hmm. and the one technique that they found works for them, or because it's actually such a a big toolbox containing so many different tools. Mm -hmm. Do you find yourself more um, going to the more fitting tool that's fitting in the moment? Mm -hmm. um, how is it, how is breath work present in your day to day life? Mm. Great question. The answer, I think, is is both. 
Um, on the one hand, I, I think about it as like, if this, then breathe. And that's like, if, you know, I find myself anxious or stressed when I actually want to be calm or say it's like the end of the day and instead of turning to alcohol or whatever it is, um, actually I'm going to go outside, I'm going to do some yin stretching and I'm going to do a calming breathwork practice. And that's my way of like downshifting at the end of the day. Um, And in terms of the morning practice, yeah, I've I've experimented with a lot of different things. And, And I think in some ways the most important like meta skill is is practicing interoception, which is our kind of internal awareness and our our ability to sense track and feel like what we're experiencing. And then ideally, when you when you wake up in the morning, um, maybe you have like a choice of two different breathing practices. One is if you're feeling sleepy and actually like I don't know, you have a podcast or something. It's like okay, I need to be more awake right now. I'm going to do Beto's breathing for five minutes, and then ground or or meditate whatever it is um or if you're feeling kind of anxious and your mind is running then okay maybe i'll do four seven eight or or humming or um alternate nostril breathing and so so generally i think people kind of tend to um use breath work to go one direction or the other for a lot of people it's going it's going from i'm too stressed so i want to be calmer um my personal practice in the morning that I, i just did is um i wake up go outside, get some sunlight in my eyes, um, do a bit of movement, kind of light workout. And then uh, sometimes take a cold plunge after that as well. There's like, I just run the bath water upstairs. <laughs> and then I'll do bellows breathing for about 40 rounds. Um, alternate nostril breathing for about a minute. Uh, I then usually do some humming and I then meditate for somewhere between 15 to 20 minutes. Um, but you can also have a much yeah. shorter kind of practice that would be you know still be very effective yeah so one one more area i'm interested in and uh, because i do dialectic and we already mentioned meditation and now breath work um Mm -hmm. and there could be other things one thing that i always think about it is how these like wonderful remedies could actually become a cope and kind of a a go-to thing and mm. eventually, like any of these wonderful things could be abused, right? Because meditation can put you, you're like, you can sort of um, change, change your mindset. Uh, because if you get good at it, you can, you can do it very quickly, right? Um, mm. Or mm. meta or something like that. Now, for mm. any of us, it's possible that we are going to lose ourselves in kind of doing this world where once again, even though we were initially doing this thing whatever it is dialectic meditation breath work in order to re-engage with the world in a healthy way and find fittingness between um, what we do and the way nature um, swirls around us Um, Mm -hmm. it's also possible to kind of complete a full circle and end up isolated because you've made this a type of panacea it's your Mm -hmm. go-to thing and actually you feel comfortable in that and um before you know it, you're mm. once again sort of mm. um, detached. So I don't know if it's if it's anything that you've uh, thought about, but uh, it's really interesting for me to think of ways to maybe have a sort of a check for ourselves that we can run and see, hmm, like am I relying too much on something that um, mm-hmm. actually now is not fitting anymore? Mm. 
Yeah, that's a really astute kind of observation and it's a great inquiry. Um, I definitely do have some thoughts about this. I, I think firstly, there's a difference between um, like mentally saying like, I should wake up and do this breathing practice like and making it like another thing on your to-do list versus waking up and tuning in and being like, huh, like I'm noticing that my heart is beating a little bit faster. Maybe you have like a an aura ring and it's like, oh, I'm not that well rested. Like, oh, probably a breathing practice would be supportive of my physiology right now. Um, and so there's more of like a kind of having a conversation with your body and your physiology and, and listening as well as just like, I need to be this way, so I'm going to do this thing to feel a certain way. Um, so that's, that's one thing. And then the second is, and I think this is probably a broader topic, is that um, I think if we're using the breathing practices to shield ourselves from not feeling a certain emotion, um, in the long run, that can also be, it can lead to challenges. And on the one hand, we want to feel, as I mentioned, kind of safe and grounded, it, before going into some sort of emotional process, whether it's somatic experiencing or whatever that looks like. But I can imagine, and I think I've probably been guilty of this myself, where like I'll start to feel a thing and then be like, no, I don't want to feel that. And I'm just going to breathe now to like avoid feeling the thing. <laughs> and then, and yeah. that, if like that, if you're perpetuating and you're breathing out of avoiding feeling something, um, that also is, you know, problematic. And And I think ultimately what, like what what I, I'm I'm feeling a lot of this work around like finding nervous system regulation comes down to in the end is welcoming the full spectrum of human emotions. And for many of us that is a lifelong journey. And there's a very important principle of, of titration or pendulation, which means like gently going into the thing and like not going beyond your window of tolerance. So kind of taking this very lightly or, or at least very, very slowly and ideally with professional support. But my sense is that um, the, the, the ways in which we are dysregulated are, is, is directly related to the um, ways in which we've shut ourselves off from feeling different emotions. And that's not just like the, the anger, grief kind of um, shame, but also joy. I think some of us, like, we don't feel safe experiencing joy and happiness. It can feel unsafe to do so. And we've created conditions for ourselves to kind of perpetuate that. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a really delicate balance between like, yes, like know that you're able to change your state if you need to. And, and a lot of the time it might not be appropriate to feel or express a certain emotion. So let's say like I use the example of like, if someone's in a executive boardroom meeting, like it might not be appropriate to like go into grief and sadness there. <laughs> so like going to the toilet and doing yeah. a breathing practice for five minutes to, to regulate and then come back in. Great. And then schedule some time that weekend to like, okay, there's clearly something here. I'm going to create a structure to, or a container to kind of feel this, whether that's on their own, whether that's with a somatic therapist, you know, whatever, whatever that looks like. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. Um, and yeah, about joy, I just watched the, uh, Brene Brown special on Netflix, which is a mm, time mm -hmm. it's, it's really great. At times it's a little bit kitsch. Um, but yeah, she was definitely pointing out that, you know, she really kind of outlines the mechanism by which we ruin our capability for uh, feeling joy and how we're basically trying to immediately think about all the, the bad things at that moment. So I 
recommend mm. that people watch that maybe because um, philosophically she made some very interesting ideas. Um, yeah, I want to share an experience from my life of mm. feeling more healthy. It seems like health is a state where emotions are accessible to you in the sense that if an event happens in your life, you are not afraid to go and feel the emotion, just we, just like we said. And then an interesting effect that it has is that you are going to appear weird because <laughs> um, mm. for me, at least, like I find myself, if something sad happens, I oftentimes don't wait until I'm home. I start crying. Mm. If something Beautiful. funny happens, I don't. I don't do that, you know, I just laugh uh, as, as long as it's fitting, of course. Um, but it's, it's really interesting the kind of perspective that then people have on you because it's mm -hmm. harder to pin you down as a person who's angry, who's generally angry. So the, the whole notion of, of personality based on, let's say, emotion, uh, type of person, the type of emotion that you associate with that person, kind of mm. goes away with a healthy person. Um, mm. and, and that's really interesting because then you have to go uh, up one level in a sense and understand, oh, this person is not bringing himself into every situation, but is actually acting fittingly. And, and, mm -hmm. that, and that is now the thing that characterizes the person, right? Not the tangible mm -hmm. emotion that comes out and is perceived. Mm -hmm. And I wondered if, if that's something that, that you've experienced um, mm -hmm. after years of kind of working on allowing yourself to, to feel more. Mm. Yeah, beautiful question. Um, there's a couple of things that come to mind. The first is, I think like the definition of health, like I would tweak it slightly in that, our response is is kind of appropriate to the situation and to the stimulus or whatever's there so often you know people will be like disproportionately angry or or you know something major might happen and they don't express any emotion at all and that's usually a sign of like there's something beneath the surface usually that happened in the past that hasn't been fully completed felt experienced etc um but uh, yeah I, I love the question of like you know do people start to see you as being weird and yeah i think the answer is yes um and like i've been I, i've been living in we were living in bali for the last year and that's probably one of the few places where this kind of kind of way of being is much more normalized um so there is i think a lot more like emotional fluidity let's say um in those environments and it's actually very refreshing like if you're um you know meeting someone for the first time and you know for whatever reason like someone like sheds a tear like it it creates a lot more depth and connection a lot a lot a lot faster um and i think it's something it's, it's one of the reasons that i was kind of t nervous in some ways to move away because i didn't want to go back to an environment where i would have to feel like i was in some ways making myself smaller or limiting my expression in order to make other people feel comfortable um, and i think there's another piece of this which is um you know what is the thing that i'm avoiding feeling by not expressing an emotion like do i you know am i going to feel awkward am i going to feel like weird or maybe like embarrassment and can i um, get to the point where i feel comfortable expressing what is like an authentic emotion for me 
and actually not really care about what the other people down the street are, are thinking. Um, so I, I think it's a it's a really interesting question, and, and I'd love to also kind of think about and find ways to normalize um, creating containers where all emotion is welcome. It's one of the reasons I love breathwork because it's like one of the foundational principles. It's like whatever is authentic to you kind of coming up in this moment is is welcome. The same is true in like men's circles, in certain retreat environments, plant medicine ceremonies, like this uh, therapeutic environments that, you know, there's a certain few places, but um, generally speaking, it's still, it, it, it's still weird. <laughs> and, I, you know, I, I like to think that's shifting slightly. And I think there is more emotional literacy and awareness around these things. Um, there's a podcast called The Art of Accomplishment by Joe Hudson that I, I really recommend to a lot of listeners. They have a series on emotions that is just a, like an absolute masterclass in, in a lot of the stuff we're talking about. And they go into each emotion kind of specifically and give good examples. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, what's, what's it like for you? Like I, I also have heard that Israel is also has a reputation for being a culture where emotions are more kind of pushed down as opposed to like welcomed. Um, and so, so how do you think about that? Hmm. Is it like, and, and also what, like, what do you want to share with your kids? Like, I imagine that's a, a question that's alive for you as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, yeah. Israel, I guess it depends on the emotion. <laughs> Some emotions are not, <laughs> are not easily containable in the heat here in the summer, hence the wars and the, and the, um, mm. yeah, Israeli culture. Well, I think one thing that characterizes Israeli society, unfortunately, is is prevalence of PTSD and and mm-hmm. and really living living in stress and it's not what you see in the news okay i'm safe i'm probably going to be safe even if there's a round of fighting in a different part of the country like that's not what it is but when when you're in a multi-decade conflict with another political entity you know of mm-hmm. course i'm not in conflict with anybody but uh, personally it's it's just putting something in the air right just make it makes an atmosphere Mm. like talk about environment and how it designs us Mm. um yeah it just shaped israel to be this very um yeah like machoism is is really prevalent here although in Mm. in recent years i feel like there is a reckoning that a lot of the stuff that's going on here isn't right. And so for one example is Israel is among these first few countries where the actual like MDMA assisted psychotherapy. I've seen that. Yeah. Uh, There's a powerful documentary that I've seen. Have have you seen the the one on Tim Ferriss? Yeah. The one that Tim Ferriss shared. Yeah, exactly. Really powerful. Yeah. Trip of compassion. So, so that, Mm -hmm. that shows um, Israeli PTSD sufferers and none of them, by the way, got it in the army. Um, but one, one was kidnapped, one was a first responder to a suicide bombing, one was molested by his father. And, um, yeah, so trip of compassion for anybody who wants to view that. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. Uh, so Israel is looking for solutions, I think, as a society, because we recognize that's a, that's a, a huge problem here. And there are quite a few people. I mean, Israel is a completely Western country. So among the, the affluent um, class, you do see a lot of people that, you know, can afford themselves both in terms of time and money, 
the exploration of such spaces as breath work, mm -hmm. meditation, mm -hmm. and all that. It's it's not so different from other places. Um, yeah, it definitely differs from Britain in the sense that we are not uh, shameful. <laughs> uh, we are not uh, <laughs> repressed in that sense. Mm -hmm. More like uh, the the worst thing for an Israeli is to come out as as um, somebody who like got the the bad end of a deal. Uh, that's like the <laughs> worst fear of an Israeli, you know, that you haven't haggled <laughs> enough or something like that. Which, by the way, um, it, according according to that logic, I'm, I'm not Israeli even. So I've always felt a little bit uh, strange here. Um, but I mean, <clears throat> just recently, to, to go into a more concrete example, just recently I went to... Uh, a house where unfortunately somebody who's a young man with um, two kids and one on the way uh, committed suicide and I went to mm. pass condolences and his daughter made this wonderful big book for people to, to write in um, mm. and um, yeah I just looked at what she wrote and I just uh, you know started crying there and mm. I don't try hiding it or something and I noticed that wasn't mm. something that other people were doing which was interesting mm. because it's like if you if you if you're ever going to come and uh, if you're ever going to come to a an unequivocally sad situation it's <laughs> that right and yet mm -hmm. you you didn't see this outpouring of of mm. emotion so um I did feel not not weird. I didn't feel weird because I knew why this was sad and I felt right yeah. about it and I was crying and that yeah, yeah. actually helped me um, process a lot of the feelings that I felt around this death because he wasn't a close friend, but we had mm. hung out with him a lot in the past year. And in the days between his death and the moment I went over to his house, his image mm. just haunted me for these days. Uh, every mm -hmm. time I would like take a, a rest or something, I would see images of him just saying hi or making coffee or something mm -hmm. like that. And then I did that and it was like gone after that day where I visited his house and made peace mm -hmm. within myself. So I think that's just uh, maybe a, a vignette kind of that shows the, the power of letting emotions pass through you and mm -hmm. come through you naturally and, and, and go wherever they go naturally. Yeah, that, that's beautiful. And um, I'd actually love to share like a short story that I, I read in a book called The Smell of Rain on Dust by Martin Praktel. Um, he, he's the same writer who talks about this idea of, of grief as praise. And in one of the, I believe it's Native American cultures, they, they have this idea that when someone dies, the soul is in this like bardo or limbo area. And it's the intensity of their tears and the intensity of their grief and their sorrow which provides the energy for that soul to then kind of pass on into the next realm and you know regardless of whatever belief someone has i think it's this beautiful idea that the intensity to which someone cries grieves wails expresses the the sadness and sorrow is almost like an act of love for whoever has been lost um, and I, I just found it such a beautiful idea. And again, such stark contrast to, I'd attended funerals as well, where like, you know, 50 people in a room and no one is crying. And it's like, right. it's like, what's going on here? It's this 
kind of stagnant, like sterile space. Um, yeah. Yeah. But that's, it's beautiful. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing too. And it's really uncanny how different cultures arrive at the same ideas because in Judaism, like I'm not an observing Jew, but in Judaism, when somebody dies, they have uh, basically 12 months. Until There's like a they, black armband, right? That I've I've heard they they wear an armband. From what um, I understand, like a black armband. On, uh, on well, one one uh, one grief uh, practice of grieving is to rip your clothes at the funeral. Like that's something uh -huh. that done. Uh, the black armband, I'm not sure about. Um, but um, uh, the deceased is supposed to kind of yeah go through this journey and and complete it after 12 months and go to be with god basically and uh, there's a certain uh, prayer that's recited at the funeral and then periodically every month and mm -hmm. that prayer is said to kind of encourage them and and drive them on mm -hmm. as they go through the journey much like you say um, and the interesting part is that it, the journey takes 12 months but you actually you you don't say that prayer for the last month because that would be a sign that it's like they need it too much and actually <laughs> you want everybody to know that that they've been uh, good enough people that they don't need your encouragement in the last month of their journey uh, uh, but it's so uh, interesting how different cultures arrive at, at uncannily similar ideas you know yeah definitely and i th i mean i also i think there's real challenges with like give assigning a timeline to grief as well because it's something that is so unique and personal and for some people you know they might grieve in a few, in a few weeks and others it might be years or decades um but i i also like i can really understand where that ritual kind of comes from yeah yeah that's fascinating well johnny this has been inspiring and uh, i just need to mm. point out that the word inspiring also comes from uh, comes with an <laughs> analogy, uh, going back going back to the breath so it's it's also something to ponder <laughs> on the next done. podcast um, i'm Nicely so done. so grateful for you sharing your story and your knowledge um mm. and i'm definitely looking forward to actually look into this because I, I do think I could use some. Um, uh, but before we say goodbye, I'd love for you to share with listeners everything that you want to share in terms of where you can, where you and your work could be find, uh, found. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, this has been a real, a real pleasure as well. Like, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Um, it went to some interesting places. And yeah, for listeners, um, I have a podcast as well. It's called Curious Humans. Um, and if you enjoyed this conversation, there's probably a few on there as well that, that would resonate. Um, and I'm I also teaching, and just going to say, <laughs> thank you. And, uh, and then I'm also going to be teaching a, a course, a five week, a five week boot camp called nervous system mastery that will be starting in uh, early no November. And so if kind of learning more about the nervous system, learning these breathing practices, more things around emotional fluidity. Um, if that resonates, then take a look at uh, the website, which is nsmastery.com. Um, and you can also find me on Twitter. I think we're both pretty active on Twitter and like to have conversations with strangers. So <laughs> that's also a great place. <laughs> Clearly. Yeah. yeah, Johnny. Well, this has been a, a great pleasure and I really hope this isn't going to be the last. So um, yeah, until mm. next time. Yeah, me too. This has been such a joy. Um, we'll stay in touch.